Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, one of my favorite media companies, Discovery Communications, reported better than expected results, uh, second quarter results. Uh, stock is actually up about 1.2% today, up about almost 20% for uh, the year. To help us break down uh, the numbers for Discovery Communications and kind of the future growth drivers for the company's company, we're welcome uh, Gunnar Wiedenfels, Chief Financial Officer for Discovery Communications. He joins us live in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Gunnar, thanks so much for being here and for dealing with my pronunciation. Um, <laughs> First Thumbs of all, just kind of one. just kind of break down kind of what you what you really experienced there in the second quarter. It looks like again some pretty good results relative to the street expectations. No, look, I mean, bottom line is it was a great quarter. Uh, I'm really, really happy with uh, what we delivered. Um, you know, because it shows two things. Number one, the core business is in much better th shape than uh, people think, and I do see a lot of longevity that might surprise some people. Uh, number two, uh, we're also seeing some first, uh, you know, results coming in from our investments on the digital side. So that's been helping revenue growth, and uh, you know, we, we just guided to an acceleration in, in revenue growth for the next quarter. So that's 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 a great uh, great result at this stage in the industry. And uh, you know the, the 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 bottom line is we're delivering uh, top of industry performance, accelerating revenues, uh, peer group leading margins, um, and we're delivering on our promises. Women like to watch houses get remodeled, and they like to watch people throw down in a cooking competition. HGTV, Food Network, TLC, all of these are uh, very uh, commonly watched by women. Interestingly, we learned that Gunnar's favorite show uh, was The Deadliest Catch, which I yep. love the idea of. Um, and we've been talking about sharks. But, but moving forward, I think one big question for all media companies is distribution, and whether you plan to go direct to consumer, and how, how you plan to, to roll that kind of product out. Yeah. Look, I mean, we've always said we, we want to go for maximum possible distribution. And, uh, you know, over the past 12 to 18 months, we're, we're now the most widely distributed uh, media company across the traditional and the virtual uh, MVPD environment. Uh, that's, I mean, that's that's a major achievement over the past uh, couple of what months. What does that mean, that you just do Sling and Hulu and Netflix? Exactly, and exactly. So it's, you've got the, the broadest reach, yeah, so be you're a, not exclusive. Yeah, okay. be your cable, satellite, uh, you know, over the top, you know, we're, we're on all uh, relevant platforms. And, uh, you know, as you said, women uh, like to watch our portfolio. Not a lot of people understand that Discovery is the number one TV company in the U.S. across all of cable broadcasts for for female audiences you know that that's, that's a pretty powerful position uh, speaks to the value of the content and um, you know that's why we also feel very well positioned uh, you know as audiences move into an OTT and direct-to-consumer world uh, you know obviously that's still early stage but we have started deploying a lot of capital into the build-out of our global direct-to-consumer platform uh, we've hired a team Peter Ferrisy joined us from uh, from Amazon really knowing uh, you know how to build those products how much and are you spending uh, well, you know, I've given guidance to about uh, three to four hundred million uh, negative AOBITA contributions for the year. Um, you know, that's you know, that's somewhere in the you know, five to ten percent range of our underlying profit. You know, it's not betting the farm, but it's material enough to help us uh, make a difference. And keep in mind, we're in a so much better position to roll this out. Uh, we've got this global footprint, boots on the ground in every relevant territory across the globe. We're reaching four hundred, close to four hundred million homes 
every day with with our products. So you know, when it comes to acquiring uh, uh, subscribers, promoting these products, we're in a very very powerful uh, starting position. So Gunnar, one of the things that maybe a lot of people don't know about Discovery Communications is that outside of North America, you guys are very big in sports. You've made some very big bets. Eurosport, uh, the Olympics uh, rights outside of North America. Uh, you had a big deal. I guess most recently would be with the with the PGA. PGA. Yep. So. You know, making a big bet on sports, but we've actually seen some investors are worried that sports rights and sports viewing has kind of peaked. How do you view your investment in sports globally? Well, two things. Number one, uh, the, the market is very different, uh, you know, between the U.S. and uh, the rest of the world because we've never had this sort of stuffing of uh, of sports into the mainstream, you know, basic bundle that we're seeing here in the U.S., which which is leading uh, and, and really driving the court cutting now. Uh, you know, in, in many international markets, there's just no court to cut, and part of that part of the reason behind that is that that. In many market sports, is more of an a la carte uh, product, so not as overpriced as as in the U.S. Um, number two is for us, uh, you know, we're not going after these sort of you know top tier premium rights where you're you know paying up crazy inflation every three years. We're trying to go for you know very attractive but a little more niche uh, content, and we're go going for as as broad a global coverage as we can get, and for long term deals. Take the PGA Tour as an example. You know, we're we're in that business for 12 years. Uh, we've got uh, all of the all of the world outside of the U.S. So that gives us uh, time to really build out a uh, a global product without having to sort of you know chase rights renewals every two or three years. And one thing I also want to point out, uh, and the Olympics may be the greatest example for that. Again, long-term deal. Uh, you know, eight years, all of Europe. And we have a very unique ability to essentially orchestrate all kinds of different revenue streams to maximize the value of this IP that no one else has. Uh, in, in some markets, we will sub-license because there is public service broadcasters that with deep pockets that just pay crazy amounts for some of those rights. In others, we have our own broadcast stations. We'll, you know, we did uh, more than 90% viewership on, on, uh, in, in Norway on some of the uh, Winter Olympics events. And in other markets, you know, we'll, we'll go in hard uh, with our own OTT product on the mobile devices, et cetera. So, so we, you know, bottom line is we can slice and dice these, these rights. We're in a gatekeeper position and can extract so much more value than many others could. Dr. Gunnar Wiedenfels, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Dr. Gunnar Vina, uh, Wiedenfels, I tried. I, I, I think it was, it was, it was a, I mean, our producer did way better than I did. Gunnar uh, Wiedenfels is Chief Financial Officer of Discovery Communications. And uh, I got to say, it is amazing the popularity of these shows. Yesterday was a bad day for risk assets in general, but it was a uniquely terrible day for emerging markets, in particular emerging market currencies. I'm looking right now at the MSCI Emerging Market Currency Index, which had its biggest plunge at one point since 2013. Here to explain what exactly investors are the most worried about right now, what they're pricing in is Eric Fine, portfolio manager focused on emerging markets, uh, fixed income for Van Eck Global. Eric, thank you so much for being with us. Let's start there. What are investors pricing in with this sell-off? Sure, thanks, Lisa. G great question, and I would phrase it as, or I would, my response would be, only beginning to price in, and I think um, there are three big things that they're only beginning to price in that are big, and they map to growth, not rates. I think everything is being viewed through the lens rate and not through the growth rate, and it's really important. What are they? Number one, the Fed. The USA is a relatively closed economy. If it's cutting rates because of issues in the big trading nations, Asia and Europe, How's that going to play out? 
it's probably going to play out where U.S. growth ends up continuing to decouple and the rest of the world growth is weak. That is dollar bullish. That's what we saw in the first half of 2018. It's what we've seen for big chunks of, chunks of, uh, uh, of time. And when you look, uh, and let's, let's say the 96 basis points of cuts that are priced in happen for whatever reason. Well, that's consistent with really weak growth numbers. That's also dollar bullish. All these countries that have been encouraged to issue dollar bonds, what are they going to do when they see, see that? They're going to buy dollars first. So the Fed context is really important. The perfect scenario, the Goldilocks scenario is we're weak enough and the rest of the world is, begins to grow just enough. I don't see evidence of it yet. China is rightly being very balanced. Germany, no hope of fiscal stimulus. US, the election's too far away. So that's the big thing. That's number one. The number two, but it maps to growth. Wait, 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 wait slow down, slow down. Slow down. The big picture ideas here are, you think that the sell-off didn't go necessarily far enough. Um, I think that the market had this general view. Um, I, I think that the market was pricing in a rate-cutting cycle from the Fed, and it may not be. And it was pricing in a rate-cutting cycle because it was too focused on global developments and on rates and not on what the Fed's narrow mandate is. Now, they may have bought some insurance, but we're a relatively closed economy that's not as affected by these big negative developments that they are specifically citing. So it's a good chance that we end up in a divergence scenario where the U.S. is doing okay, rest of the world isn't. And put, put differently, what are they going to hiking rates? What does that do for China trade? Sorry, cutting rates. What does that do for that? Right. Right, right. And, and the dynamic is unusual because this, uh, you know, on the second big issue, which is trade, is cutting rates, if that's the response to what many think is bad trade policy, that encourages that. And the Hong Kong situation obviously encourages a harder line. So the dynamic, so the Fed is the context. Trade is the second big issue. I mentioned the third one, but you, you, you have a question, Well, Paul. let's just, I mean, just the news today or the last uh, 12, 24 hours, uh, um, now that China's been named a currency manipulator, do we care about that? Do emerging markets care about that? Well, the facts are they care. The, uh, pretty much every FX other than Lira, where there's direct state intervention, most likely um, cared. So they do care. Um, it's a bellwether currency. It's held. Um, so I think there are two ways of answering it. The narrow way is no. What happens? Uh, IMF issues a report. Um, there are possible restrictions on OPEC. It's a state, U.S. state agency that can guarantee lending, um, limits its loans or is stopped from lending. Very narrow. Symbolically, though, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's important. My broader question is, who wants their currency stronger? Argentina. Other than Argentina. <laughs> Fine, I could come up with a bunch. But yeah, but that kind of proves the point. But yeah, who wants their currency stronger? This is, this is where the rubber hits the road. And this is where traditionally, what's a central, this gets to the level of central banks. What's a central bank going to do? Buy foreign currency denominated assets of another country? Okay, so you buy emerging markets fixed income for a living. And you're coming in here expressing a lot of concern about the entirety of an asset class. So what are you buying? Yes, great question. Great way, friend. What I always tell people is, if when if your choices for emerging markets boil down to you waking up in the morning and thinking about President Xi and Trump and the Fed, then that's an issue. Um, why? Because there are categories of EM bonds that are vulnerable to that. There's a big chunk that are low yielding. Polish government bonds and local currency at 2%. Chinese government bonds at 3%. Mexico in dollars at 3.5%. Russia. So are you saying run into those or run no, out of I'm those? No, I'm saying those are the ones where if we're correct and in, on one of the two big scenarios that the Fed is not on an easing cycle and that there's upside risk to yield, those are, that's a whole category of EM debt that's very vulnerable. It's over a third. 
then there's another category that is vulnerable um, to rising spread duration, let's say, because, because there's risk that the Fed is hiking rates because it's growing, but the rest of the world is doing poorly. So they're not doing any better. Rates are going higher. So you better be darn sure that your spread is coming down for idiosyncratic reasons. And there are a lot of countries that don't fit nicely in that. Well, I put ESCOM in South Africa. Um, I'd even put Mexico, um, the sovereign, and although that's also got a low yield problem. Those, so those categories are the vulnerable ones. Those are big parts of what people think of as emerging markets. However, there is a large category that's very idiosyncratic and that has strong reformist governments that are paying high yields. Ukraine. I've been looking at Ukraine for over two decades. I have never seen a more reformist government that has likely to have IMF support, 8% yields. Brazil, much lower yields, very reformist government, but it's a net creditor. It doesn't mean that there aren't problems in Brazil. They map to the currency. But dollar-denominated, long-dated bonds of, of Petrobras with 5% yields, that's attractive. That can respond to this environment. So uh, if your general answer, so if my gen broadest answer is it's about growth, not rates, and my narrow answer is if what EM means to you is waking up in the morning and thinking about Jay Powell and the, the, the presidents of China and Russia, uh, sorry, presidents of China and U.S., markets. be cautious, right? There are a lot of things that are issues. But if you can be selective, there are a lot of great things in EM. And the bottom, the biggest context is the efficient frontier based on 15 years of history says the best category of EM bonds, including all categories from treasuries to global ag to corporates, people are underinvested in EM generally. If it means piling into generic stuff, I just told you my answer. But if you can be tactical and find the right way to express it, there are plenty of opportunities in EM. Eric Fine, thank you so much for joining us. Eric Fine, Portfolio Manager, covers all things emerging markets, fixed income strategy for VanEck Global. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Let's bring in Paul Gate, senior research analyst uh, focused on European metals and mining, to uh, to really understand what's driving the declines that we've seen in metals. Is this just concern about escalating trade wars? Um, hi, good, uh, good afternoon, good morning. Um, look, you know, in, in 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 the short end, the answer to that is yes. I mean, clearly, what we've seen over the last uh, you know over the last few days is. Uh, you know, copper responds to the sort of macro the risk off sort of trade, right? Um, and your sort of point about Dr. Copper, people use the copper price, you know, for, for whatever reason to articulate, you know, a view that they have around uh, around uh, around global growth. It's liquid, it's easy to trade. You know, people can get into and out of it fairly uh, fairly easily. However, I mean, I think the other point, however, that you've got to sort of look at, however, is if you were to look beyond copper to let's say another LME traded commodity like nickel, that's actually up today. That's been on a bit of a bull run for the last uh, for the last few months and that sort of defied uh you know the, the the negativity around the sort of macro sentiment to actually post some pretty significant gains so what we're sort of seeing in these commodities is something of a mixed bag you know the the, the economic fundamentals eventually will trump uh essentially or, or overtake uh the the risk off you know trend trend trade and the risk off sentiment and you'll actually see supply demand fundamentals start to matter but in the immediate short term for a commodity like copper there's no immediate immediate deficit. And so people are using it as a proxy for global trade. 
We're speaking with Paul Gates, Senior Research Analyst for Sanford Bernstein, uh, calling in from London. Paul, thanks so much again for joining us. Just wondering, kind of as we think about copper, give us a sense of the supply and demand model that you see playing out here. I'm just looking at the chart, as Lisa mentioned, uh, kind of an ugly chart. But what's your sense on the supply and demand uh, dynamics for that metal? I mean, if you actually look at the sort of fundamentals and you say, look, you know, supply demand as you uh, as you talk to, what you see at the moment is a market that's actually in deficit, not a huge deficit, but slight deficit. Moreover, if you were to look at, for example, the position of the uh, LME, say, for example, terminal market inventories, if you look at the amount of metal that's available on either, uh, you know, LME, Shanghai, COMEX, you know, you're dealing with very, very little metal actually available, only about six or seven days worth of inventory is, is actually sort of there. So from the f- fundamental supply demand perspective, the industry is actually sort of looking pretty, you know, pretty, pretty healthy. Moreover, if you were to roll this forward a few years, uh, what you start to see is an industry whose fundamentals tighten up dramatically. Uh, today's kind of copper price, it's very, very difficult to invest in any new form of supply. It's uneconomic to build a new copper mine, certainly uneconomic if what you're aiming for is one of these larger, more complex ore bodies that have been developed over the, uh, you know, uh, over the last few yeah. years. So really, there isn't any supply growth. Demand growth continues to track, you know, uh, at least in a trend sense, what it's always done, which is to sort of, you know, follow uh, global industrial production. So you roll this out a few years, and yeah. it's, you know, almost inevitable that we're going to see the, the, the copper price rally from uh, rally from here. However, of course, in the immediate short term, people aren't interested in, you know, the fundamentals. All they're interested in is the ability to articulate a negative view on, for example, you know, the the RMB, Chinese growth, uh, and and trade sentiment, and uh, the the copper price is a convenient means by which they can do so. Paul, uh, really quick, 30 seconds here. Which metal are you most bullish on then over the next six months? Look, you know, over the, over the next six months, we'd certainly be bullish on copper. We'd expect to see a recovery there. I think going into the, uh, going into the uh, seasonal trade at the end of the year, there's a case to be made, you know, even for a commodity like iron ore that has had something of, uh, you know, has had a very dramatic sort of bull run. We also continue to be supportive for, uh, for a commodity like nickel and uh, something like palladium as well. Paul Gate, thank you so much for joining us. Paul Gate is a senior research analyst covering European metals and mining for Sanford Bernstein uh, based in London. We appreciate your comments. If we talk fixed income, we talk to Ira Jersey, chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. We should start with yields that touched the lowest since 2016 in the U.S. yesterday. All the price action. I want to start a little bit differently, though, because we got that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal of former Fed chairs saying that it was really important to have an independent Fed. Meanwhile, James Bullard uh, spoke to the AFP. He's the St. Louis Fed president. And he said that the Fed has to avoid uh, sort of responding in with rate cuts every time there's a tit for tat in the trade war. This seems to indicate there's a pushback to the assumption in markets that the Fed will respond with deeper cuts to the trade uncertainty. Ira, what's your take on this? Yeah, I, I think that James Bullard is probably the first of uh, probably a few Fed speakers that are going to come out over the next couple of weeks and, and talk about that we're looking at the real economy and we're looking at you know how trade and trade tensions might impact the real economy going forward. And that's what we're going to react to. We're not reacting to 
to headlines. We're not reacting to tweets. We're going to react more to the kind of the, the boots on the ground and the normal things that they look at. And I think that the cut that occurred in July was in part um, that they had the ammunition because there was increased uncertainty about the economic outlook. There is slowing global growth. And when you look at some survey indicators like ISM new orders, they're teetering on the edge of growth actually going negative. So, um, so that's something that the Fed wants to get in front of. So, you know, the other thing that he said that that uh, President Bullard mentioned was he's going to be looking at incoming data. So it's really about data and then data expectations, regardless of you know what either the president wants or maybe what even what the market's expecting. So, Ira, I'm looking at the 10-year Treasury right now, 1.75, uh, 1.76%, uh, and I know that the and when I look at the futures, the market's pricing in three, I guess more likely four rate cuts going forward. What is the market seeing that perhaps the Fed is not and maybe some observers are not seeing as it relates to the economy? Well, yeah, yeah, I think that the market really is looking forward to uh, additional, uh, firstly, uncertainty, but also much slower growth and also, you know, kind of easier, uh, easier monetary policy globally. So the idea that the ECB might be starting a, a new round of quantitative uh, easing, so a lot of a lot more asset purchases, as well as maybe another uh, uh, deposit rate cut in September. So all of those things, I think, are weighing on, on the market. So the market was pricing in for another, for basically what we are are now about a month ago. And then things kind of got better, at least from a sentiment perspective. And then, you know, over the last week, they've gotten to, or really four days, they've gotten significantly worse. And and it's it's all about sentiment, I think, in, in the market right now. So we could easily take back, um, so, so right now we're, we're priced for another four cuts by the end of next year, uh, by the end of 2020. So two more this year, two next year. But we could easily take one or two of those back in, in a heartbeat, basically, if, say, trade tensions end up uh, end up being um, being resolved say at the beginning of September sometime in September when uh, the US and China have these talks and and you know that will change that sentiment very quickly so it's one thing for Jim Bullard to come out and say that the Fed can't respond to every tit, and tit, tit for tat in the trade war it's another thing for Jay Powell the Fed chair to come out and say that and I'm wondering especially in light of that op-ed uh, that was printed in the Wall Street Journal I'm wondering is there a growing fear that Jay Powell is not independent that he will cave to market sentiment and market expectations and the pressure uh, to be overly easy at a time when the economy still looks good. Well, I think we give a little bit too much credit to the Fed chair. I think you know, you know, Alan Greenspan was probably the first kind of imperial uh, chair of the of the Federal Reserve. Um, so I think at this point there there are people like Richard Clarida, for example, who he's not going to be beholden to tweets, and he's not going to be uh, he's going to look at data within his own his own monetary policy framework and make his decision based on on that reason. He's uh, so, so I, I think it's not. Not Jay Powell that, that you have to worry about, but it's you know how 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 much are all of the other members of the FOMC influence, and I, I suspect that most of them have big enough egos, personalities, and are Type A personalities that they, that while they're they're not going to be immune to you know some of the the chatter by by people in the administration, they are going to ultimately act independent in, in how they believe they could best serve the uh, the economy of the United States. 
So Ira, I know interest rate geeks like yourself model this stuff out. Where do you think the 10-year treasury yield should be given economic data? <laughs> you, are you okay with that title, by the way? I, I, I prefer to be called a nerd, but that, okay. that's okay. <laughs> um, the, uh, so, so, so our model has fair value right now, just based on where economic conditions are at a little bit over 2%, closer to 2.25%. So you know, we are very rich to where, uh, where our work says is fair value. What the market's pricing Right now, um, if you if you just plug things into our fundamental fair value model, uh, it's pricing basically stagnant growth. So we have n- not a recession, but we have zero GDP growth priced in, as well as the Federal Reserve starting uh, what we're dubbing as QE light. So so the Federal Reserve starting to keep reserve balances constant and, and do some modest uh, bond buying. So so it, that's why I say like we have this big uncertainty premium built into the bond market right now, and just like we got here very quickly and. Three days, we rallied, you know, 35 basis points. We could easily undo all of that in a, just a few days as well, if there's some sort of certainty that's built into some of the uh, expectations uh, for the economy and uh, and the, the trade tensions going forward. Ira Jersey, thank you so much. Ira, our uh, resident uh, interest rate nerd, is the preferred term. <laughs> Excuse me, you, you totally <laughs> went way off the reservation there. Exactly, Chief U.S. Uh, interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and joining us on the phone from Princeton, New Jersey. We appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.